Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from different sides of the debate over universal school choice and school vouchers. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Robert Bortons, CEO of Classical Conversations and member of the Academic Board of the Classical Learning Test. First, we talk with Corey DeAngelis. He is Senior Fellow at the American Federation for Children and also Visiting Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. You can find him active on X, formerly Twitter, at DeAngelis Corey. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Talking today about this issue of universal school choice, and I want to begin by giving you the opportunity to tell us a little bit overview about where we are, uh, uh, not necessarily on a state-by-state basis, but where we are on this playing field over the debate on universal school choice. Yeah, I'd first like to thank Randy Weingarten and the teachers unions for overplaying their hand and awakening a sleeping giant, which happens to be parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. The unions lobbied the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen schools. They were threatening safety strikes. They threw everything at the wall to see what would stick with fear-mongering. And the unintended benefit of those school closures, the remote learning, which we really should have just called remotely learning because not a lot of learning was going on, was that Families got to see a little bit of what was happening in the classroom and parents who thought their kids were in good public schools based on standardized test scores or state rankings started to see another dimension of school quality that's arguably more important than anything that can be captured by math reading test scores, which is whether school's curriculum aligns with families' values. So parents have woken up and we're seeing a school choice revolution unfold right before our very eyes. It's a universal school choice revolution meaning every single family is eligible for these initiatives, regardless of income, background, or zip code. And we now have 10 states that have passed these types of policies, going all in on school choice, passing Milton Friedman's vision of universal uh, school choice. Every family, regardless of income, can take that money to a public school if they want. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school uh, for real this time and like with your doctor. (laughs) But if not, you can take that funding that's meant for educating your child to a private school, a charter school, or a home-based education option. So now 20% of states, one in five states, have universal school choice. They've been uh, states with GOP trifectas where Republicans control both chambers of the legislature and the governor's office, except for uh, the most recent state, which is North Carolina, but that's not because their hypocrite governor, Roy Cooper, went along with it. He sent his own kid to private school and then fought against school choice for others, pulled the ladder up from behind himself so much. And he was terrified of losing his monopoly so much this year that he declared a state of emergency over school choice because every Republican signed on to the bill in both chambers, making it so that he could not veto the bill uh, without an override. So we're, we've had a this seismic shift in support in the minds of voters and and families, but also on the legislative side, with 10 states going all in and more teed up for victories as well. Tennessee, for example, their governor just announced his universal school choice plan. He actually had governor uh, of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, come over to at the bill announcement, uh, at least the the priority announcement Mm -hmm. uh, at the press conference. And they discussed how there was this friendly competition among different states to empower families with school choice, uh, Arkansas being one of them that went all in this year in 2023. 
Corey, what's the philosophy and argument behind universal school choice? Why will it? Why does it improve school quality and, and student outcomes? Well, parents know their kids' educational needs more than anybody else, particularly more than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. They had the most on-the-ground knowledge about their own kids' needs, and they had the best incentive to get the decision right for their own kids. So this is about parental rights and education. The best way to secure that right is to allow families to vote with their feet to the education providers that work best for them. This also leads to better outcomes in the public schools because of competition. School choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. 26 of the 29 existing studies on the topic find positive effects of school choice on the outcomes in the public schools too. So it's a win-win solution and the money's meant for educating the child. Education funding is meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether it's public or private. So the philosophy is that that money meant for them should follow them to wherever they're getting the best education as determined by their parents, not the government. And we do this with just about every other taxpayer-funded initiative that Democrats support. When it comes to higher education, they support Pell Grants. So you can take that taxpayer funding to public universities if you want, but you Mm -hmm. can also take it to private religious or non-religious universities. We do the same thing with pre-K programs. Think about Head Start. You can take that taxpayer funding meant for your child at the pre-K level to a private religious or non-religious provider. The money follows the decision of the family. We do the same thing with food stamps for private grocery stores. We do the same thing with Medicaid vouchers for hospitals that can be used at religious hospitals if you want, and so on and so forth. It's just so interesting. The same people who, who support all of these other things where the money follows the people as opposed mm-hmm. to the institutions, they get all up in arms about it and freak out, even declaring a state of emergency in North Carolina only when it comes to the in-between years of K-12 education, and that is all because of a difference in power dynamics. Choice is the norm for higher ed and pre-K and everything else, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest, the teacher's union monopoly, mm-hmm. only when it comes to K-12 education. So they fight it as hard as possible against any change to the status quo. And at the same time, a lot of these people who oppose school choice for lower income families in particular, they sent their own kids to private school. Think about Joe Biden did this, Governor Newsom in California, uh, and and so many others. Elizabeth Warren, Senator from Massachusetts, they send their kids to private school and then turn around and fight as hard as possible against other families having that same kind of opportunity. All right. A couple of things there I want to follow up on. One, you mentioned Pell Grants and college funding. One, one thing we have seen over the years as more grants are available and, and loans are easier to come by is that college costs have increased dramatically because there's more money available. Why would the K-12 market react differently? We have a study out from Heritage Foundation's Jay Green and uh, Jason Bedrick finding the opposite, that increasing school choice in different states has led to a, a decrease in tuition inflation relative to states that did not expand school choice. And there's a couple of reasons for why this could be. It could be one, that there's uh, an increase in market entry. If you increase demand, private schools could open up, which has a downward pressure on price. And then also competition, just allowing people to vote with their feet relative to other things just in the the status quo, allowing people to shop around for their education also has a downward pressure on price. So the theoretical effect on tuition overall in the private sector from school choice is ambiguous. But if you look at the data, it tends to have a downward pressure on prices, uh, especially in the the medium term to long term. And as far as why it's different in higher education, look that the the 
status quo is much different in K-12, where you're already spending the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can be a conservative and oppose expanding Pell Grants while also being conservative while supporting the funding following the child for K-12 because you're not increasing government size at the K-12 level. It's a fraction of what would have been spent in the government schools. So mathematically, if you're only taking, like, let's say, half of the funding, the government schools spend about 18 or so thousand dollars per student, according to the latest data that I've seen from the census, from the National Center for Education Statistics. Well, if you're only taking about eight or 9,000 of that with you, on net, the the overall price much must be lower than it was before if you're spending less than you were before. Corey DeAngelis with us here on Future of Freedom. There always are strings attached with government money, government spending in some way, shape, or form. These the schools, perhaps, that begin to move from a, a privately paid uh, uh, formula to one that includes money that is being sent to them through through the government – Is there a reason that they should not want that government money to follow students because of mandates or requirements that might come down the road? Not all school choice bills are created equal. And if you look at our uh, model legislation at AFC and Institute for Justice and others, if you look at the bill, the the model legislation text, we have explicit anti-regulation provisions that should be included in the bill, such as not having the government force you to have a particular curriculum or admission standards or discipline policies. Uh, or so on and so forth. So you want that anti-regulation language in the bill, and that's what the, the the states have been passing recently. And at the end of the day, this argument is making perfect the enemy of the good for, for a lot of reasons. One is it's all voluntary. You can make that cost-benefit decision to take the funding for your own school and your own student on the part of the parents. They should make that decision for their own families and schools. And then two, the government can already regulate private and home education. They have historically, they do today. In Oregon in 1920, they outlawed private and home education, not because of a school choice program, obviously. It was because of authoritarians who wanted to control the minds of other people's children. And thankfully, in 1925, the Supreme Court overturned that bigoted law when the court famously said, quote, the child is not the mere creature of the state. And today in New York, uh, they're cracking down on some of the Jewish schools in New York City, and they don't have any private school choice programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have the worst homeschooling laws in the nation in New York, according to HSLDA, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. And if you look at states that passed universal school choice recently, like Oklahoma and Ohio and Iowa uh, and others, they tend to have better homeschooling laws when it comes to freedom. So states that expand education freedom tend to be the states that are also better on uh, homeschooling and school choice at the same time. In fact, school choice policies can reduce the likelihood of authoritarians uh, controlling private education in a few ways. One, you get fewer kids being indoctrinated in government schools to like big government policies. They'll be less likely to vote to regulate private education in the future if there's fewer people in that pipeline towards government control. Two, if you have more people using private and home education through school choice programs, you build a bigger coalition, a broader tent. And as you know, uh, Scott, politics is all about organized interests pushing for what they want. You have more people on your side pushing against authoritarian overreach, you're going to be less likely to have it in the future. And three, with school choice policies, private education becomes more mainstream. And if it's more mainstream, the rest of society should be less likely to call to regulate it out of existence. And at the end of the day, look, I've heard that this is some plot, so-called plot by 
Democrats to infiltrate CRT into private schools. Look, that's never happened. We've had decades of evidence of private school choice programs in over 30 states now. If you're going to fear monger like that, you better come up with the evidence to prove that it's already happened. It's never happened. And that no, no school has ever been forced to take the money. Uh, it's all voluntary. And why do all Democrats vote against it? Uh, in basically every state, if it's a plot by Democrats to control private education, it seems pretty ridiculous. And then also Randy Weingarten, who's a, a big time socialist who hates school choice. She's made the same argument to fearmonger in, in red states about the, the potential overreach into the private sector. Is she saying that because she's some libertarian? No, she's a big government socialist and she wants to keep her gravy train going. If you're on Randy Weingarten's side and not my side, you're probably on the wrong side. Corey, you mentioned some places where there has been success. There are areas, even in, in red states, where there have been hurdles, and people following you on Twitter know about that. And many times these are, not in all cases, but many times rural Republicans who are, are skeptical of universal yeah. school choice. They're concerned about the effect on uh, local community public schools in mm -hmm. those areas. They're afraid that they'll go under at some point. Why are they wrong? Yeah. Well, it's one of the dumbest arguments I've ever heard against school choice. It's a, it's a way for fake Republicans to have their cake and eat it too, to pretend they're still Republicans while voting against their own party platform. In Texas, 88% of Texas Republican primary voters supported school choice on the ballot last year. So they come up with these arguments, these same guys who were endorsed by the teachers unions in the first place to try to have their cake and eat it too. But it's, they basically try to say two things that are logically incompatible with one another. They'll say on the one hand, well, we don't, we, we can't use this in my area. My constituents don't use it because we don't have any private schools. They'll say, quote, the public school is the only option. And it's like, okay, in the next breath, they'll look at you in the, uh, with a straight face and they'll try to look in the eyes and tell you, well, we can't have this because this will decimate my fantastic rural public school. And it's like, hold on, wait, which one is it? If you don't have any exit options, you should be the last person arguing this is gonna defund your schools because where are people gonna go? You're gonna keep the same amount of money in your public school if it's the only option. Uh, but then two, if, you're, if your public school is, is so fantastic, like you say, if the rural public school is the lifeblood of your community, well, then you should really have nothing to worry about. It's the, it's the areas with the lower quality public schools, maybe in the urban areas, that should uh, have a little bit to fear from competition. It shouldn't be these rural legislators. And then at the end of the day, nine states, which are the most rural states in the country, uh, including West Virginia, already have passed some form of private school choice policies. West Virginia being the first state to go universal on school choice, one of the most uh, uh, rural states in the country. It hasn't been a barrier in those states. Uh, and then historically, Maine and Vermont, they have the oldest voucher uh, programs in the country, started in the late 1800s actually, called town tuitioning programs. And they built these programs specifically for students with uh, it, who lived in areas that were so rural that they didn't have public schools. So the state gave vouchers to students and their families to take to nearby public schools in other districts or to private religious or non-religious schools. So they found out a long time ago that not having a lot of choice because of your geography is it not an argument to expand opportunity, it's to exp it, not, not to uh, restrict opportunity, it's an argument to expand opportunity. Uh, so not having a lot of choice is a good argument for school choice, uh, not to, to trap people in schools that aren't working for them. And if you look at voters and polls time and time again, you find that voters in rural areas tend to be more supportive of school choice than in non-rural areas. So if anything, 
these legislators in rural areas should be more supportive of school choice uh, than those in, in non-rural areas. But everybody should support it at the end of the day. Corey, if, if public schools begin to suffer enrollment losses and, and perhaps begin to quite literally, literally fail in, in some areas, are you afraid at all about the inertia of government and the inertia of school spending that there just won't be more money found and sent to those schools anyway? If you look at what we have today with the school choice policies, the public schools actually do financially benefit already. So one, they shouldn't really be complaining about defunding. But if their entire goal is to just increase per student funding, school choice actually does that while saving taxpayer money at the same time. And the way that it does that is we spend about $18,000 per student in the government schools. As I said earlier, it's just a, a portion of the state fraction of funding a fraction of the state portion of funding that follows the student, let's say seven or $8,000 per student, you can save taxpayer money by spending less, but then also some of that portion of local funding and federal funding still goes to the public school. It depends on the state how much that actually is. But on a per student basis, if you're losing only half of the funding or a little bit more than half, well, you're going to end up with higher per student revenues and expenditures. So they should be less likely to call for, for more funding if they're per student funding. It's kind of harder to make that case. If, if last year your funding was 18,000 per student, now it's 19,000 per student because you have fewer students and, and uh, some, some of the money stayed. It's harder to make the case that you need more money to taxpayers. Uh, so this should have a downward pressure on the likelihood of them increasing expenditures. And if you look at a review of the evidence by EdChoice in their review called 123s of School Choice, they found 73 evaluations of the effects of school choice programs on taxpayer benefits. 68 of the 73 evaluations of existing programs have found taxpayer savings that result from school choice uh, as opposed to the other way around. Let me just follow up on that last point very quickly, because again, there there is a, a, a logical argument or a, a, a argument of logic that opponents of universal school choice make that says, uh, if you begin taking some students who are now being paid privately uh, for these schools and add them to the universal choice uh, system, well, there's there's there just has to be more money going out because students are being added to those expenditures yeah. from the government. And you're saying that there are studies, or at least the ones you cite, that, that says that's not happening. Yeah, so basically, if if you're paying for students who are already paying out of pocket, is that, that yes. that's basically yes. the concern. So the way that we've dealt with this in model legislation is to have a portion of the funding that would have followed the student to from the state level to follow the student now. So let's say, on average, there's about 10% of the population is in private schools already. So if you have 90% of the funding per student following the student, mathematically, you're going to end up with being either revenue neutral or a taxpayer benefit. Uh, so it's it's based on that that 10% differential. Each student that switches out of a public school will save 10% mm -hmm. um, funding, whereas the additional student coming from the private school will be an additional uh, taxpayer burden. But if you balance it out with enough of the switchers from the public school, you can create a taxpayer benefit, which is what we've seen historically. Corey DeAngelis is senior fellow at the American Federation for Children, also a visiting fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. You can find him on X, formerly Twitter, at DeAngelis Corey. Corey, thank you so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you, Scott.
Now to hear another side of the argument about universal school choice and school vouchers, we talk with Robert Bordens. He is CEO of Classical Conversations, a company supporting homeschoolers in more than 50 countries, also sits on the academic board of Classical Learning Test. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Uh, Discussing the idea and, in some cases, implementation of universal school choice, universal school vouchers today, Robert, we, we talk early in 2024. We have just finished a year in which there has been some movement in the direction of universal school choice and vouchers in some states across the country. And generally, uh, this idea polls pretty well when people are given the question, um, what, what are we missing? What are, what are people who are supporting this perhaps missing in the argument? Yeah, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of government and also um, the fact that is that it is basically universal basic income for children. And uh, that is not something that conservatives should support. It's uh, stealing money from your neighbors to pay for your child's own education. And, um, you know, as a Christian and uh, someone who believes in the, ten, you know, Ten Commandments, uh, you know, we should live our lives in a way that don't, don't violate them. There are areas in some red states, uh, generally rural areas, in which this has been a more difficult sell for supporters of universal school choice, universal school vouchers. Why is that? What what, what do people in those areas um, and, and residents and, and perhaps some of the rural areas in red states know? What what do they care about that is not being reflected in, in, in this argument? Well, I think a couple of things. Uh, one, sometimes in these small towns, the public school is the number one uh, provider of jobs uh, in those towns. And so it's really, you know, public school teachers. My wife was one for 10 years. Uh, bottom line is it's a, it's a jobs program and it's a babysitting service. And so they don't want to get rid of that is really, the I think, the main reason. Uh, and then you might have people that are more observant of the historical practices of government once they get the uh, hooks in you of money. And the fact is you get uh, you get government dollars, you start working for the government instead of for families and for children. And so they uh, may understand that a little bit more clearly that they do not want socialism in their counties. Uh, so, you know, perhaps they're less socialist than those in the cities. This idea of, of, of government funding, all, all money from the government so, comes with some strings attached. Should, Amen. Th- should schools want this sort of funding? What kind of mandates or requirements should they be concerned about coming in the future, perhaps, from the government? Yeah, so, I mean, we can just look at our college system, which is funded mainly through government, and uh, we can see that the price has gone exponentially high, the quality continues to decrease, and uh, student loans uh, are, you know, a burden on our society. So, I don't know why we're trying to create that for the K-12. Obviously, you'll be, you know, kind of forced in the future when a new group of people are elected to potentially adopt uh, e, you know, DEI, CRT, um, all sorts of things that you may not want to, to teach or reasons that you've started your school. So you officially become an agent of the government because they're the ones paying your bills. In areas in which we've seen these ideas implemented, and there are states uh, like Florida or Arizona who, to some extent, have have adopted universal school choice, universal school vouchers, what what do we see? Are are students leaving public schools in these states for private schools or charter schools? Um, Are we helping kids escape government schools or, or simply that 
simply a, a movement of, of where that money comes from, meaning we are, we are subsidizing the, the, the parents who are paying for those private educations. Yeah, so I think in Arizona, it's been about 50-50. 50% of people were already in private schools paying their own bills, and now they're on welfare, having their neighbor pay their bills. And uh, about 50% have left the the public school system, but they haven't really left the public school system. The public school system has just been expanded into private schools because it's called public school because the public is paying for it. And they're called private schools because the, you know, you're paying for it privately. So, uh, it's just really created all private schools that accept students that take this money into public institutions and Arizona is going to go bankrupt. So they're trying to figure out how much money they can give away next year uh, to uh, individuals because they can't afford to continue to give the amount that they're giving now. So it's really just added uh, more people to the welfare rolls of the state and uh, you know, people may, you know, use euphemisms like let the money follow the child but the money actually just goes back into the crony capitalist pockets who are starting these jobs, starting these schools. And so it's just uh, continuing to make the welfare state uh, larger and the government, everybody's baby daddy. I want to re- return to a point that you made earlier about college and, and college tuition with the availability uh, of, of Pell Grants, with the availability of, of student loans in, in many places. We, we see college tuition rising. The more money available for students who want to attend college, the higher tuition rates generally are, are going at various colleges and universities across the country. If universal school choice, universal school vouchers becomes more widespread across the country, do you see any way to avoid that same sort of cause and effect in private K-12 schools across the country? I mean, we're already seeing uh, private schools raise tuition. Uh, you know, they're not going to raise it all at once, just like when the Pell Grants became available. They didn't raise it all at once, uh, but it'll be definitely continuing to raise prices above uh, the rate of inflation. And, um, you know, they're doing it for the kids. So, you know, we're doing it for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, we'll be able to give them more services and things like that. Uh, we can pay our teachers more. So there's all the great reasons to take this government money, but then you realize it's really just taking it from the widow that lives across the street from you in uh, in her taxes. And the Bible is very clear about stealing from widows uh, for things that you want. <laughs> Robert Gordon is with us. He's CEO of Classical Conversations and sits on the academic board of the Classical Learning Test. We've talked a lot about money. We've talked a lot about funding so far. Where does the question of school quality enter the equation and, and, and school outcomes? If we could prove that under a system of school choice and universal school vouchers that the outcomes were better, that children were better educated, would that be worth the trade-off of where that money comes from and how those schools are being funded? Well, it depends on your worldview. Uh, If you have a biblical worldview and believe that uh, we should uh, operate under the laws and governance that God's given us, uh, I don't know that that's that's possible because it's, it's a form of socialism and we know socialism and Marxism do not work. That's why there's this outcry about against critical race theory and critical queer theory. So it's just, if you want to adopt socialist ideas, just admit you're a socialist. Don't call yourself a conservative. Robert, you talked earlier about new people being elected and perhaps forcing schools who take this money to teach different things. There's also a problem, isn't there, with uh, politicians becoming elected and then changing the rules in midstream. For example, recently in Illinois, 
they had a, a tax credit scholarship program, which we should point out is not necessarily universal school choice, universal school vouchers, but at the same time, parents were counting on these tax credit scholarships for their children to attend schools. New politicians enter. That program has now been ended in Illinois. You always run that risk when the government controls the funding mechanism, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I know uh, many schools in Florida haven't even been paid, at least as of the end of this first semester, for students in their system. And they were thankful for the people paying privately. Um, We know that uh, Jesus told us to build our house on a rock and not on the sand. And anytime you build institutional structures on government funding and on the promises of politicians, you're building them on sand. And so since these systems and these universal school choice is really not economically feasible for the state to continue um, to do, then they'll have to either reduce the amount they're paying out or uh, end these programs altogether. And so people who invest in building buildings and hiring teachers, they're really every single year uh, could be out of a job, could be out of their investment. And so they're building institutional structures on sand. And I would just urge people that if you're going to spend your life doing something great for children, build it on a rock. I want to ask a little about the role of of teachers unions in this debate, Robert, because teachers unions, as I'm sure you are aware, are, are virtually universally against this idea of universal school choice, universal school vouchers uh, across the country. I'll ask it this way, I guess. Does it give you any pause at all that you are uh, you are on the same side as the uh, as the teachers unions in, in, in cities and states across the country? It does not give me any pause. Uh, they have come to the accurate conclusion through uh, inaccurate worldview, and uh, that happens all the time. So teachers unions are definitely, uh, you know, a bane on the educational system. Again, my wife was a teacher for 10 years and they didn't help her out any. And I know uh, Governor DeSantis, I think, signed a great law where if the teachers union doesn't have a certain amount of people, you know, participating in it and paying due members that they're going to get decertified. And that's, that would be a, an actual conservative policy to get rid of teachers unions uh, that don't necessarily represent the teachers they claim to claim to support. There, there are parents who, who, who like school choice and these school voucher programs because, uh, in a word, they, they are desperate, right? They, they want their child to, to escape perhaps a poor school or a school where they're being taught things that they, they don't want to be taught. Maybe it's a two-income household. They don't have the opportunity to, to homeschool. They can't afford to privately pay for school. Right now, what, what's the message to parents like that? What, what can they do if the answer is not this sort of universal school voucher program? Scott, everyone likes free money, and that's why we have uh, $34 trillion in federal debt. Uh, So that's, of course, free money is always going to be a popular uh, political thing. That's that's what Democrats run on, is just giving everyone a cradle-to-grave funding. A couple of things, uh, you know, first of all, you know, go go to churches, go to the place you work, you know, find private scholarships. Uh, you know, conservatives should be reducing regulation on schools and on school buildings and on use of church facilities so that it isn't, doesn't cost an arm and a leg to uh, start a school. Uh, you can definitely get, uh, you know, businesses are seeing that uh, their uh, new employees are not uh, educated well. And so businesses are getting motivated to start schools. So uh, there's ways to get these uh, privately uh, funded 
schools started. And uh, that's what we should be working on. We should be spending our life and our effort uh, working on building institutions on rock and on private funds, uh, not money stolen from our neighbors and widows. Robert Borden's with us here on Future of Freedom. You've written a number of times on this. People can can see those essays. One thing you, you've said is focus on empowering parents rather than expanding the state. So, so down the line, if we want to work in a way to empower parents, what does that look like? Well, I think the first thing is, is to stop believing the experts to uh, let parents know, uh, just change a national conversation that parents are capable of educating their kids, that parents uh, do have the ability to uh, make wise choices. Um, I mean, if I encourage all parents, if your kids are in an institution, you know, to say, hey, I'm going to take a day off work and I'm going to sit in all my children's classes and uh, see if they let you do that. If they're not going to let you do that, then, uh, you know, I would pull my kids out immediately because you have the right and responsibility uh, to educate your kids. And so uh, we need to stop this conversation around uh, socialism being the way to pay for education in our country and to start bringing it back uh, to our uh, local uh, body of community, our local people, our churches and our civic uh, groups to uh you know, fund and make sure these uh, educational opportunities are available for everyone. Robert Bortons is CEO of Classical Conversations, a company supporting homeschoolers in more than 50 countries. You can find them at classicalconversations.com. He also sits on the academic board of the Classical Learning Test. Robert, thank you so much for joining us here today on Future of Freedom. Thank you, Scott. We thank both of our guests for joining us today. Corey DeAngelis, Senior Fellow at the American Federation for Children and Visiting Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, and Robert Bordens, CEO of Classical Conversations and member of the Academic Board of the Classical Learning Test. For additional episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or anywhere you find your audio. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network.